it is an honor and a privilege to, for my wife and I to have been called by God <coughs> to do church planting in Chicago. Uh, we do believe that God loves this world. Um, this is a world he cherishes. He's double loved it as both its creator and redeemer. And he has established a new family, the church, right, to help restore the world to God through our big brother, the Lord Jesus, and uh, to help heal the world through God. And one of the ways the church <coughs> um, keeps doing her thing, <laughs> keeps uh, spreading the healing touch of Christ, keeps operating as the hands and feet and voice of Jesus Christ, one of the main ways she's done that throughout all the ages, one of the signs that she is alive is that she is birthing new local churches, right? <clears throat> that she's going into all the nooks and crannies of society because God loves his world and, you know, establishing these outposts of the kingdom, right, where people are being built up in Christ and sent out to incarnate his presence in the world. And so we've been called <coughs> um, to lead a church planting enterprise in Chicago. I'll mention a little bit more about that later. But thank you for being a part of the Presbytery that is behind us and with us and for us. Uh, we very much believe that you're a part of this mission. Um, the Apostle Paul, as bold and brave and as venturous as he was, he was always kind of... Uh, linked back to or tied back to home churches, and he went out kind of from them and supported by them and backed by them and encouraged by them and loved by them, and he would always kind of go out from them and come back. They were kind of his uh, touch points to keep getting strength, you know, kind of come back, get refreshed, get encouraged, go back at it again type deal, and that's kind of what church planting is like. You need uh, churches that are already, by the way, every church was planted, <laughs> so you need churches that have been planted and now have grown up to be uh, to undergird you and support you. And so we're depending upon the churches of this presbytery to do that for us. <coughs> well, let's uh, now look to the word of the Lord. And let's give careful attention to the reading and hearing of it. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, <clears throat> nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Then John 20, it's a post-resurrection appearance of our Lord to his scared disciples. On the evening of that day, that is the first day of the week, the resurrection day, the doors being locked where the disciples where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John goes on to write, 1 John 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life. Which was, from, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our, our Lord will stand forever. Hallelujah. <clears throat> well, I don't know how many years ago it was, probably four or five now. <clears throat> there was a, a young man in his, I guess, late 20s who contacted me, said he needed to get together. He had something heavy on his heart he wanted to talk about. Now, this uh, gentleman was at present not at all active in the church. He never terribly been that devoted, but he had uh, definitely drifted away from what little former devotion he actually had. <clears throat> and he wants to talk to me. And of course, I kind of already know what it is, right? When you have an unchurched, you know, 20-something-year-old guy, there's at least a high probability that it's about a girl who's broken up with him, right? <clears throat> and sure enough, that was it. <clears throat> The reason she had broken up with him is because, let's just say, he didn't seem to know which end was up. Now, <clears throat> uh, don't mistake me, a very successful young man, uh, you know, attractive, accomplished, plenty of connections in society, did real well <clears throat> academically at college and two graduate degrees and was pretty much blowing the top out professionally. <clears throat> but he was kind of one of these people who had a lot to live with and very little to live for. <clears throat> so we sat down to talk. And he said, look, I feel kind of cheap. I'm coming to you to talk to you about life, but a lot of the reason I'm doing this is because I, I really want to win her back. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, hey, I don't care what your motive is for getting you here. We're here. Let's talk about it. And so I began to do what I typically do with most people. I ask them, what's your story? And really what I'm trying to get at is, 
what's the story you're inhabiting in life? What's the narrative read you're living by in life? And I'm pressing him on that. What do you think is the story of the world? Why are you here? What are you up to? What are you doing? And he said, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, don't, I guess I, I don't think about that a whole lot. And I, here's what I was pressing him with. Saying, well, yeah, you kind of do. And here's the point. Everybody is living based upon some story that they've inhabited, that they've planted their life in, that they've anchored their life in. They're living into it. They're living out of it. They're living by it. <clears throat> I said, you just are maybe someone who's a little more self-conscious by it or someone who's just a little um, not that self-aware about it. But underneath the surface, in there, you've bought a story. You've hooked your life to a story. And I told him, just flirt with these questions. How is it that you've come to answer, where did we come from? What's it all about? What happened? Are there any answers? How am I to live? Where are we heading? Tool around with those questions. It'll help you understand the story you've anchored your life to. And I said, look, here's the deal. Those questions are going on in every human heart all the time. Just some of us are pushing them down, not really wrestling with them, not being honest about them, but they're there. <clears throat> he said, hmm, I haven't thought about that. The next week he came back and we met again. And he said, you know, last week after we met that night, I was at the bar <laughs> with four of my friends. And I decided to try out what you were pressing me with. And so it was late night, and it was just the bartender and us four or five people. And I started thinking, said to him, hey, do you ever think about where did we come from? <laughs> what's it all about? Anything, is, what's wrong? Are there any answers? How are we? He goes, every one of them said, yeah, I guess, I guess we are always thinking in those terms. You see, the reality is we're living in a story. We're participants in a story right now. As we sit here today, you are characters in a story that is unfolding in human history. Now, my question to you is this. What is the story? What is the story of this world of which the story of your life is a part? What is the story of this world of which the story of your life is a part? And I'm going to press you on this because here it is, gang. The, the, the meaning of your life, the purpose of your life, the value of your life, it, it's all hinged upon what the big story is. If the big story of this world is dull and meaningless, then the best your life can be is dull and meaningless. If the big story is great and awesome and kind of enchanted and wonderful and fascinating, then your life can be all of that. If the story of this world is a, a tale of nothingness 
we start from nothing, we go to nothing, there's nothing in between. And sorry, no matter what you try to make of your life, it can have no meaning. The reality is your life has been caught up in a story. We're all caught up in a tale. I'm asking you, is your life caught up in the true story of history, in the big tale of history that's given to us in the Bible? And the claim, I think, of the scripture today is this, is if you want to live a big life, a real life, a fully human life, if you want to live that big life, then you need to anchor your life in the big story of Jesus Christ. If you want to live a full life, an abundant life, then you've got to anchor the story of your life in the big story of Jesus Christ. I want us to see three things quickly today. The fact that this is a story of a big creation. Jesus comes to us packaged in the story of a big creation. Now, I mean, all these things are just... uh, John is using words and imagery that capture huge thoughts that you could talk about forever, okay? So I'm going to try to do my best. But when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. That is, Word do, okay? Word being was there from the beginning, And launched this whole thing called the story of the world. Now, as I said, this is a story of a big creation. And I want to tell you, we're not talking necessarily about the the size of it, the literal size of it. Though that's big and huge and awesome and worthy of great discussion. But I want to say, God has launched a meaningful creation, a magical creation, a personal creation, and a structural creation creation he's watched he's launched a meaningful creation that's a lot of what's meant by what john says when he says that in the beginning was the word um what's he talking about well to the philosophers of that day the word he's using there is logos in the ancient greek and that meant kind of the You're looking for the piece of the puzzle that'll make sense of it all, right? What's the integrating principle? So he's kind of, he's trying to draw them into the story of Jesus Christ and says, the story that is revealed in Jesus Christ, this is the word you're looking for. This is the answer you're looking for. This is the story you need to hear if you want to put life together and make sense of it. But to the Jews who heard this, when they hear, in the beginning was the word, Boom, what do you think that registered with them? Well, back to the way the human story was narrated in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so over and over again, it's talking about God speaking. God spoke, and there's light, and he starts organizing things, and he starts um, building out what I like to say. He starts building out a neighborhood. He starts building out a creation environment. He starts building out a context for the story of human history to unfold in. He's building out a context for life. 
this word God is a God of personality. He's a God who, he's a God of intentionality. He dreams, he thinks, he's meaningful in his design. He's not random and impulsive and void of any purpose in what he is doing. He is a God who had a word in the beginning. And his word was about how this life was supposed to be. And it's really cool when you think about it. Let's just tease it out for a second. If you look back in Genesis 1, um, what life did he set up? Well, he set up a context where humans would do certain things, right? What are the activities that humans do? All humans do the same activities. And we either do them well or we do them poorly. We do them as um, in, in, ter- in, in a manner of showing human fullness or human decay. All humans multiply, work, play, rest, worship, and relate. And God set up, word God, set up a context of life where we would work, where we would play, where we would rest, where we would worship, and where we would have relationships, a neighborhood dynamic of relationships in which we would carry out all these activities. And the fact of the matter is, this big creation is not just meaningful, it's also, it's magical, it's enchanted, you know? Um, it, It talks here about, in the beginning is the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word is God. So there's this spiritual, immaterial, unseen reality, this eternal preexistent God, right? And so there's this unseen world that's entering into the seen world, right? The Word is taking on flesh. And so we live in a magical created order. We live in the seen world. It's lived against the backdrop of an unseen world. There is material reality that gets its meaning from an immaterial world, from spiritual truths that are downloaded in its DNA because of its creator. Just a simple little way to illustrate this. Have you ever thought about this? You take food. And and food is pretty straightforward, right? You open your mouth and you eat it. We could keep it just as a raw physical activity. But it's not a raw physical activity. Right? It's a deeply spiritual activity. There's immaterial realities going on surrounding food and work and everything else. You can take food, which is a pretty simple exercise of eating, and you can overeat because of all kinds of spiritual stuff going on inside you. And you can deny yourself food because of all kinds of spiritual confusion inside you. Everything is always more than it appears. You take sex, and really, it's just a simple physical exercise. It's not even very complex, but it's loaded with massive theological, cosmological, huge meaning. It's about difference, diversity, and unity. It's about uh, many and one. It's about loving otherness. It's about covenantal devotion. It's about being knowing and being known. It's not just a raw physical appetite you exercise. 
if that were the case, then why are so many people in counseling over this experience in life? Because there's a big reality behind everything in the physical world. Work. We don't know whether to overwork or be lazy. We don't know the purpose of work, right? We don't know whether we should uh, take our work and exercise it in such a way that we use others and hurt others. Because you don't just work. Big spiritual realities are coming into play in work. Because this is a magical word God, life God. He made the world to mean something. He made it big. And he made it personal. In the beginning was not loneliness or division or isolation. In the beginning was community. I remember I was teaching my daughter uh, a Bible story. You know, hey, I'm a preacher, and I'm trying to really get my kids beefed up theologically, right? And I'm reading them a Bible story book. Which, by the way, when we're talking in terms of story, uh, my ADD is hitting. I'm sorry, I want to go on a rabbit trail. But I'll just say, story is not just what you do with little children. Story is the way to understand life. So it's not like you graduate out of it. So if you're not telling, so if you can't tell the stories of this to kids, then you don't get the story of life. So I'm telling my daughter the story of in the beginning. And I'm just try- thinking, boy, this will wow her. I mean, I've kind of got pretty good experiences. So I start talking about the eternal preexistence of God and forever and ever, ever, always. He never came into being. He always was. He never needed anything. He was self-sufficient. I tried to say that in all kinds of interesting, neat ways. And, and so I, I just think this is expanding her mind. And I'm seeing her going, getting kind of like horrified, horrified. And I'm thinking, okay, I keep trying to pour on more, and it's getting worse. And so finally, I said, what's wrong, Lucy? And she says, how sad, how sad, forever and ever and ever all by himself. And see, as a child who's hearing the story, she's got enough intuitive sense made in the image of God's kids get the fundamentals of the universe. Surely this world is about relationships. And you're right. And the doctrine of the Trinity, though we cannot explain it that terribly well, it is incredibly beautiful in what it communicates. From the beginning, from all eternity, ever and ever and ever existed a community of love and other-centeredness and devotion and different personality and uniqueness and sharing. And that's our world. And we're made for a relationship with this God and one another, and ourselves, and all humanity was meant to be a neighborhood, a worldwide neighborhood of relational love and devotion. It's definitely meaningful, it's definitely magical, it's personal, and it's structural. It is freaking structural. I lost my place in my notes. No, okay, so here's the deal. God made us, word God, He is supreme. He sets the terms on what life is. He's the one who alone, with his structure, can make life be light. You go against his structure, you release darkness. And so God made humanity to be what? Underneath him, it's a beautiful setup, great being, great order. I want to bless your socks off. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to be in the big chair, God alone. You're going to sit at my feet 
You're going to be under me, and then I'm going to put you over creation. So just stay under me and over creation. And that's where I can release you in the garden to help build this neighborhood out with me. To help tease out all that I've downloaded, all the capacities in which I've downloaded creation. I want you to tease them out with me. I want you to build this neighborhood out with me. Just do it by me, with me, for me, my way, and it'll be life. There was a structure. But when we go against the structure, what? What do we do? This is really where darkness gets released. All these things fall apart. We decide, we don't, you know, here's the deal. Nobody really doesn't believe in God. I mean, I'm happy to argue that with you. There's a sense, I think some way, academically, some people are atheists. I don't think anybody in their gut actually doesn't believe in God. What we do is we just either use him, redefine him, subordinate him, manipulate him, control him, make ourselves him. (laughs) These are all the things we do. So that what happens is God is underneath us and creation is over us. And so now... There's a sense in which we start worshiping the created order and ourselves, and then it doesn't go right. And guess who we blame? God. We blame God for the fact that idolatry doesn't work. We blame God when we want to we go out and live freely as if God doesn't exist, as if there aren't boundaries and balance and parameters in life. We want to use the world however we want to use it, and it all turns on us and devours us and our dreams turn to ashes in our mouth and then we blame God and God's like well you know what you've tried to snuff out life you've tried to snuff out life you've pushed back you've bite you've bit the hand that fed you and you can't do life that way you're going to release the power of darkness and here's the deal it's not here's what happens When we go against this great, big, awesome creation story, it's not that we quit being humans. We just start being humans all the wrong ways. And that's what darkness is. And that's what death is. The neighborhood he made starts to splinter and divide. Relationships get severed, right? We don't know know whether we should be uh, prudes or pagans. We don't know whether we should enjoy the world or hate it and deny it and try to flee it. We just don't know what to do with ourselves. But you want a big life, it said. You've got to attach yourself, anchor yourself in the story of big creation. And then you've got to attach your life to the story of the big recreation. Because you see, here's the deal. Fundamentally, what happened is we don't, believe the word of God we don't believe God's authority we don't trust God's design we think we can sit in the big chair right we've already kind of said this and so what happens is creation starts to fall apart but the good the big story of the Bible the magical story is that God didn't just love this world as the creator and then when it turned its back on him and then when we set about the, the, the work of darkness to decreate his creation, which is what darkness is, and death, 
which just tears it all up. He didn't just love the world as a creator. He loved it as a recreator. And that, it, that, it, that is the great story of the incarnation. It is the greatest story ever told. By the way, do you know that they actually have in screenwriting school, uh, schooling, you know, when they teach screenwriting, they say there is like a universal good story. It's like universally understood to be the great story of the world. Here it is. It starts out with everything is blissful and glorious and beautiful and good and right. And then there's an inciting incident, some type of um, rebellion that creates a fracture, right? And that things start to fall apart. And then as the story goes, <clears throat> there's kind of a hero who enters in through, he's, the hero's great. And then this hero enters in and kind of goes the route of weakness and suffering puts the well-being of everyone on his or her back, suffers and often dies in order to turn the narrative around, in order to heal things. That's considered the great universal story. Now, let me ask you this. Where did we get that from? Have humans, because it's across every ethnicity, it's across every group in human history. There is that story that percolates in the human heart. Tolkien said it's called a eucatastrophe. And every time in any version of that story, when, you, when that storyline is played out, every time the human heart hears it, a deep uh, base spring of joy is plucked in the soul. How does every human intuitively know that's the greatest story ever told? Because there is a story at the highest level, at the greatest meta-narrative level, at the biggest, highest overarching story level, that is the story of this world. That is the story of our God. That is the story of our Creator, who when it turned its back on Him, He didn't ditch it. He would not let light win, darkness win. He said, I will not let darkness overcome light. Light will win out. Life will win out. Death will be overturned. And so God became flesh. The eternal preexistent God came down and squirmed in amniotic fluid because he didn't want darkness to win. He didn't want death to win. He didn't want the neighborhood to be completely torn apart. He wanted to put his neighborhood back together. And that's exactly what's going on in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. Jesus has lived his perfect life. He showed what it means to be truly human. And he has tragically died on the surface at the hands of the religious and state authorities. But he has died as an eternal sacrifice and substitute for our sin and for all that we've done to break up God's neighborhood. And then he rises from the dead guaranteeing that he's going to overturn everything that's wrong with this world. And so Jesus comes in. He comes into our lives when we're racked with fears. Fears of the Jews. Fears of, and you could just fill that in with anything else. You know, fears about, are we going to make it? Fears about our health. Fears about our children. The fears about, um, how the world is going. 
We live in a world racked by fear, and Jesus says, peace. This is fascinating. He's talking to a group of people who are starting a new revolution of love in the world. They're supposed to start it. They have no physical power, no financial power, no economic power, no social power, and he's going to release them to go be his healing agents in the world, and he says, it's all right. I rose from the dead. I've already won the game. You gotta understand, he's saying eternity has come into the now. The final fixed future is invading the now. Okay? It's 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 going to be partial yet substantial, but final and full in the end. The future is invaded now. We've already overturned death and darkness. Let's unroll this campaign with me. And so Jesus says. Just, just as the Father sent me to love this world and be his healing agent in the world, I am sending you, the church, to go be my healing agent. Go show humanity underneath, by, with, and for Jesus Christ what it means to work, what it means to play, what it means to rest, what it means to relate, what it means to worship. How, does Je- how is Jesus healing you in all those aspects of humanity? How is Jesus making you more fully human in those ways? Go exemplify that before the world. Go keep celebrating, gather to worship and celebrate, eat and drink in, believe, sing about, testify about the story of Jesus, and then go out and tell the world about it. We've got the message of life that overcomes death. And our God has already won. And we don't go forth with weapons of military power and might. We go forth with the power of the Holy Spirit and the living Christ in our midst. His presence pulsating in our existence. His story staring down all the other stories and says, you can't give them life. I've got the life. I am the word. Look, this is why we're church planted. The church has one of the main ways she shares the light. She gives the bread and wine to the world. One of the main ways she offers Jesus is she goes and plants churches. One of the greatest signs that the church of Jesus Christ is alive in the world is that established churches are continuing to be revitalized, renewed, refreshed from Jesus, and continuing to challenge themselves. Are we on task with this mission with Jesus? Are we living out this big story? Are we celebrating it? Are we sharing it? You should be asking yourself that. Are you? And are we putting out there more church outposts, more local expressions of the body of Christ where people can be one to Christ, hear the story, get caught up in the story, start sharing and living and telling the story? In the United States, I'll just give you these statistics. In 1900, there were 28 churches for every 10,000 Americans. 2011, so 28 churches for every um, 10,000 Americans in 1900. In 2011, there were 11 churches for every 10,000. So we have a precipitous decline of the number of churches per citizen. Fascinating that uh, a couple years ago, 4,000 churches were planted and 3,800 died. 
a net growth of 200, but that's nowhere keeping up with the population expansion. So you see the point. The church is not going to be the light of Christ in the world. She's not going to be the bold witnesses if she doesn't go and proclaim Christ. If she doesn't, so, so obviously, look, Christ is already being proclaimed in Chicago, but there's also, there's also plenty of room for more. Best I can tell, less than 10% of Chicagoans. Here it is, one of the most famous cities in the world. It is a true culture, a city of culture makers. That means these are people who are telling stories. These are people who are <clears throat> leading in the neighborhood. And less than 10% go to church. So there's tons who need to be reached for Christ and built up. And I want to tell you, God loves Chicago. When he chastised Jonah, what did he say? There are 200,000 people who don't know their right hand from the left in Nineveh. Don't you think I love it? Well, there are 10.3 million in Chicago right now. In the city proper, there are about 3 million. God is passionate about his story being celebrated, lived, told, acted out in Chicago. And the EPC... Look, we're just a little old thing the Lord is doing. We're just one branch of the church. But surely we've got some weight to pull in that city. Surely we do. I think to be in this presbytery, it's not just Chicago. We've got a bunch of big cities. We haven't shaken, to use the southern vernacular, we haven't shaken a stick at a lot of these cities. We've got a lot of work to do. We've got to get after church planting. the wine. He's the shepherd. He's the big man in the neighborhood. He's the one who wants to make all things new. Do you want to share that story and live that story? I'll close with this. Um, well, no, I, I, I do have to say this. Um, you know, this isn't the fanciest bag to carry these in, but these are called rack cards. Uh, I'm, I'm not Mr. Fancy Schnazzy. But these are just ways to entice you to go to our website and consider praying for uh, this mission and consider whether the Lord, you know, what role the Lord might want you to play in supporting it. I also have on this very fancy setup here, sign up where you put your email and your, your name and your email address so I can put you on our newsletter letter mailing address. Mailing list. All right, close with this. Philip was a friend of mine. <clears throat> he was a wonderful guy. Came from a devout, and I mean devout, Christian family. And was just he was just a faithful brother since he was a little kid. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> um, when he was in law school, um, I mean, this guy's he's just kind of a leader, dude. He's now the president of the state's house, uh, head of the House of Representatives. He's that kind of guy. You know, he just lived a charmed life. But his, when he was in law school, uh, he and his wife were paid a visit by his father and mother and sister, all of whom were very dear believers. And they had a great visit, and then his parents left town, and as they were making their way kind of on ramp onto the highway, 
a drunk driver came out of nowhere, hit them right on their gas tank, slow the car, killed all three. <coughs> Major news. This is a very prominent family in my home state. Well, I had not seen Philip <coughs> since that happened, and one day we were having lunch. This is, I don't know, seven, ten years later. I can't remember how much later it was. Probably about seven years. And... I, you know, I'm just one of these guys who will ask the question. <laughs> so I'm like, Philip, uh, you know, I trust our relationship enough to ask this. I said, I've, I've got to ask you, <clears throat> what happened to the guy who killed your family? Huge smile, radiant smile on his face. He goes, can't believe you asked that. You're not going to believe it. Since the very beginning, I have written letters and urged him to meet with me. And he wouldn't do it because he was so racked with shame. He finally agreed, I'm going to the state penitentiary tomorrow to share the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, his mother and father and sister getting killed, it was still a part of a big, awesome story that needed to be told and people needed to believe and come find life in him that is the big story of the world of which the story of our lives in Christ are a part hallelujah 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 amen let's pray Jesus thank you that you are the word, you are the life, you are the light. You're so beautiful. We're sorry for the role we play in it. In darkness, we're sorry for our stubbornness. We're sorry for refusing, oh God, to believe that you're good in this neighborhood would run best by you, with you, and for you. Thank you that you did not turn away from us in our rebellion. You have a stubborn love. Um, joy to the world. The Lord is coming. Let earth receive her king. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You're turning back the curse. The light is winning. Help us, O Lord, to give our lives to this incredible, adventurous story It's the greatest story ever told. Thank God it's true. Thank God for its wonderful hero, who alone is life eternal. And we pray in his name. Amen.